This is the show for grown-ups. And they say bad words. And they say bad words. Say final warning. Final warning. Hello and welcome to another Pot of Blunders, the in-between mini-sode where some of our cast members get together to answer stupid questions chosen by the role of 1D12. However, today we're going to do something slightly different. We're going to review the new D&D book, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Nate, being our resident expert, has really dug in and, and read the book. It's been, what, three years, Nate, since the last one? Yeah, um, well, the last big drop for subclasses for the game came in 2017. That was uh, Xanathar's Guide to Everything. So yeah, about three years. And those subclasses, they were very... I, I mean, I don't recall picking any or, or seeing any when we play. I mean, were they just not well-received? No, or I think they were good. Um, a lot of them, you know, you had your varying levels of strength, but in my other campaign that I'm playing, I played one of the characters there. My barbarian is the Ancestral Guardian Barbarian. So they had some good stuff. But people like the player's handbook stuff because that's what they usually have without having to buy anything else. Which is fair. I get it because the yeah. books are a little pricey, especially when you're just starting in. You just want to get one book and, and kind of jump into it. Right, right. There was uh, some shipping issues uh, related to COVID. What was your experience between ordering the book and then, then getting it? Because I am chief nerd of the podcast. I pre-ordered the book. It was supposed to drop on the 17th, and I didn't get it until like three days ago. Yeah, you done goofed. You had to get the hard copy. I had to get the hard copy because it goes on my little shelf of all my books. And also, the ampersand on the spine of the book doesn't line up with the other ampersands on the other oh, books. Geez. So, you know, two demerits there. Not really fond of that. As somebody who used to have a lot of the hard copy games, you know, the, the game boxes for like GameCube and, and the Wii, when one game decided to go off the rails with like putting the like, I think the Wii was always up top. And then when they put it at the bottom, it just, oh, oh my God, it was so annoying. The DVD box set of the show Monk. Oh, yes. They all line up except for one of them, which I'm assuming is has to be on purpose. They did that 100% on purpose. <laughs> But yeah, I own the book. I've read it twice through now. Humble brag is what? It's 100 and 190 pages long. It starts off with some cute rule reminders, like the DM is in charge and how disadvantage works. But then it gets kind of esoteric with some of the stuff. Like if you cast a bonus spell on your turn, you can cast another spell on your turn, but only if it's a cantrip. That's one of the 10 rules they chose to highlight in the introductory matter of this book which I, I guess it's a pretty frequently forgotten rule, but it just seems strange compared to the other rules they chose to reiterate, like how advantage and disadvantage work. Yeah, that is a bit of a strange rule, considering that the first one you said is is the DM rules all. And if a yeah. DM says, I want it to be higher than a cantrip, technically the DM can do so. So it is a strange rule to force. I just think it's an oddly niche rule to, to call out like this. So like you have a, a list of 10 rules that you want to highlight. And they go from such big things like, you know, DM rules all and how proficiency bonuses work and how they can't stack. Like really big, broad rules. And then this little weird niche rule that's like on one page of the player's handbook. I'm more to nitpicking because, spoiler alert, I'm not the biggest fan of this book. And we'll get to why that is. I don't want to say it's not stuck in your ways, but you <laughs> kind of like the way things are for a reason. I've, I mean, I've played every iteration of D&D since second edition. I'm not afraid of change. <laughs> <laughs> I wish this book had more change. But we'll get to that. Um, the, the big thing you see a lot on Twitter right now is people talking about the change to how races are in this book. So in D&D, you know, if you play a dwarf, depending on the kind of dwarf you get, you get a plus two to your constitution and a plus two to strength or a plus one to wisdom. And it's this kind of like racial essentialism that comes through in D&D. 
like, oh, you're a dwarf. Well, all dwarves are like this, and that kind of got people icked out, you know? It's kind of gross to just boil that down, but it's also been in D&D since Chainmail. It's been in forever. Well, now they've given you permission in writing to switch those ability score modifiers with pretty much whatever you want. So you can be a plus two charisma dwarf. You can be a plus two intelligence dwarf. So that sounds like a rather good change. I think so. I think it's great. If you want to make a a dwarven wizard, you don't have to be behind the curve of a gnome wizard. You don't have to sacrifice being a really heroic and gifted character just because you want to play a certain type. And they extend to this too, like if, if your race has a certain language and you can explain it through your background, like you can choose a different language. So if you're a Goliath and you get common and giant, but your Goliath wasn't raised by Goliaths, it was raised by... Say dwarfs. Yeah, you know, that's a fine one. I didn't want to do dwarf again, but that's fine. Then you can speak dwarf instead of giant in common. They give you that wiggle room. And then proficiencies, like you can swap out a skill proficiency for another skill, or you can swap out an armor proficiency for a simple or martial weapon or a tool. Like they give you a lot of optimization rules that a lot of tables are already doing, but they've codified it in this book. Now... My question is, because you you mentioned race changes, have they introduced any other ones as playable? Not in this. No, because you know how I think Drow is still playable, correct? Yeah. yeah. They used to be very bad, very bad guys. But now with the new uh, shift in the books and everything there, they're actually kind of a not a goodly race, but they're not all real evil. Well, they're trying to make them more people, you know, like more like there's no, oh, because of your race, you're evil. That got wizards into some some deep shit. Yeah. Like, same thing with Dwergar. Like, okay, so let me get this straight. All these dark-skinned races are inherently evil. Yeah, it's it was it was a poor choice. It just seems for somebody like me who's, you know, just kind of getting into building their characters, I don't have to read as many rules to what I can and cannot be. If I want to be a good orc or I want to be a giant wizard, the reins seem like they're off right now, right? Absolutely. And I think it's great that the, that the game actually put that in black and white. So, like, you don't get some shithead DMs like, well, naturally, orcs are only strong and constitutionally strong. They can't be smart because of racial essentialism. <laughs> like, it's like, I don't want eugenics in my D&D game, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that's really cool. <laughs> I don't want to get political, but I'm not a big fan of racism in my D&D game. That's why I was curious to see if they added any other ones like... Because I don't think there's a, a, a normal rule set for, like, goblins or... Was there one for Durgar? If you get... Durgar, I'm not sure where this is. I think it's in Volo's Guide. They had a bunch of, like, the monstrous races, like Yuan-Ti, Snake Person, Lizard Folk, Kanku, the Raven People, like, all those are in, are in that book. How about... Oh, there's there's a race of... Oh, jeez, oh, the... <sighs> So you had the Dorgar, which were like the, the deep dark, the underdark dwarf, but there was an underdark gnomish race. Wasn't there a halfling? Is it gnomish? <laughs> the Swerf Neblin. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Any chance I get to say the word Swerf Neblin on a recording, I'm happy to take. Have have they been allowed or? Yeah, they were back in other books, but, but now they can be whatever racial modifiers you want to give them, whatever ability scores you want to give. You have Wizards of the Coast full permission to do so. One kind of neat thing they included in this like a little sub-block of this area is a custom lineage option. We can pretty much, it's like a little cheat sheet of how to make your own race really quickly. So you choose your creature type, you're a humanoid, but you could be like, oh, you want to be a, a Medusa person. Well, now you can do that with this really easily. Size, you're medium or small, your choice. They give you a base walking speed. 
you choose your ability score, uh, you choose a feat to add to your creature, you get like dark vision or proficiency of your choice in a language. It's a real quick and dirty way to throw together a race if you don't see something in the book that speaks to you. And I like that they're giving you more tools to homebrew your own stuff. I think that's really great. Do you find that over the years that they've been trying to make it more new player friendly? Yeah, I think 5th edition was a huge step in that direction. Um, Really, 4th edition was too. So 4th edition, they were really trying to cater to the MMORPG crowd. You know, that came out as WoW was like at its zenith. So you got very strong tactical board game, role-playing game with 4th edition. 5th edition, they went, "Mm, that wasn't really as well-received as it could have been, so we're going to do more narrative-focused. And with the birth of Twitch, and with the birth of all this streaming stuff, actual plays... They have been making, they've been getting a lot more attention from new players who are coming in that way. I heard an interview the other day in which one of the D&D folks was saying this was the first time since D&D launched that more people were coming to the hobby from actual plays than from, say, an older brother that played it or seeing someone at a table in high school and playing it that way. So because they're getting so much more onboarding from new people, they're really trying to make it an easy process to learn the game, which is it dumbing down? I don't think so. But then again, I, I just I'm a big proponent of seeing the hobby expanded in new areas and having new people come in, come on board. Oh, yeah, I agree. And I, I think because more and more people finding D&D, mm-hmm. those changes, those necessary changes, like we mentioned before, with the, you know, these these dark races that were inherently bad. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 a good thing that they've acknowledged that they've had some you know, rather unfair things in their previous books, whether it's either race or otherwise, that they're they're kind of not trying to retroactively destroy and make better, but they're trying to they're just trying to do better. There's been some stuff in fifth edition that's been really questionable too though. Like uh the Tomb of Annihilation, where you go to the continent of Chultz, which is very jungle heavy and very tribal. And the way they depict tribal peoples has not been well received by a lot of people. They're seen as you know savage and primitive and all this stuff. So I, I'm glad they're doing steps in the right direction with this new book. But even as as recently as like a year and a half ago, they've had a questionable history. And before that, of course, third edition they had Oriental Adventures. Like, come on. I don't know. They could have done a better job. I mean, if you're the industry leader, you gotta you gotta think about these things. So Nate, what are some of the uh, the new classes I've been reading about? So the one new class, quote-unquote new class, is introduced in this book is the Artificer. Um, it's kind of like the, the Tinker class. This class, for the most part, was already published in a book, uh, Eberron Rising from the Last War. They've, they've published it again in this book with some of the Eberron-specific information scrubbed out of it to make it more just generic. And they've added a new subclass of Armorer. This is going to be a theme in this book where you see a lot of stuff that's just... If you've bought all the books up to this point, you already own 40 to 50% of this book. And a lot of the subclasses, you've seen them in things like... So wizards have a thing called Unearthed Arcana. They put out this playtest material for people to use. So it's usually it's like subclasses or new spells. The majority of the things in this book are from the Unearthed Arcana, which is good because that means they've playtested them and they make sense. They've, they've gotten feedback from players at actual tables playing with their buddies and trying to run it. I, I don't like that they have reprinted material from an existing published book in here but some of the classes are really really sweet some of the subclasses 
just for example, I was looking at the barbarian because I love barbarian classes. And they have something called uh, one of the primal paths for the subclasses is the Path of the Beast. And it's like the werewolf class of barbarian. This is kind of the pet book. Like the, most of the classes here, they, they get new pets of some sort. The druid gets spore druid where you have a, a like a bunch of magical mushroom spores floating around you. Another kind is wildfire druid, which you get a magical fire pet that gets to do cool stuff. Now, <clears throat> with the introduction of these uh, like companions, mm-hmm. do you think that was done to either make it easier for smaller player games, like two or three player games, or just a novelty? That's a really good thought. And I think you're onto something, because later on in this book, there is a feature that's presented here that's republished from another D&D book that is uh, sidekicks. So if you have like a one-person or two-person party and you want to add another like dungeon master guided character or one like a, a simple kind of boiled down character for another player to run, you can give them a sidekick. It's not as powerful as a full PC, but they are very handy and they're really easy to run. And they're specifically designed to run for for low number of players at a table parties. Now the player just runs both of them. I'm assuming, kind of like in tandem. I mean, they can or they can give it to like a DM PC to run. I usually hate to see that, but just because the DM has a job enough as as it is doing what like running the game, you know. Agreed. Those are interesting additions. I mean, summon pets and and like Beastmaster Rangers that sort of thing. They've been in this game since you know second edition. I don't think they're stealing from anything. I think it's just they were missing from fifth edition for a long time for some reason or other, and they're trying to fix that. To the point, like, even a lot of the spells, there's a few spells in this book that are brand new, and they are almost all of them summoning spells. So summoning an undead spirit, summoning, you know, a beast, summoning a fey creature, etc. It's a pet book. <laughs> there's tons of pets in this book. Well, while we're talking about spells, one of the things I kept reading about uh, is one of the newer editions is the magic tattoos. What's up with those? What's up with those? So they're kind of like a magic item. Depending how powerful they are, they take up more real estate in your character's body. So, like, a low-level one might just be one arm. But, like, one of the legendary ones might be your entire chest and back and both arms. And they're pretty cool. Like, you get the spell. They Let me see if I can get a couple examples for you. They're in the magic item section. Um, for example, like, let's see. You attune to the tattoo. This one's an absorbing tattoo. Is the first one I came across alphabetically. It lets you pick a damage type and you have resistance to that kind of damage. So whenever you take, say, fire damage, and you've had a red tattoo that's supposed to be for your absorbing tattoo, you would take half as much fire damage as you normally would. Now, do these take up an attunement slot of sorts? They do. They they have to be attuned to them. So how would you go... All right, I want a hypothetical here. How would you go from having that, right... And then finding two sweet items that you're like, okay, I want to wear those. How do you unattune from a tattoo? At the very end, it says if your attunement to the tattoo ends, the tattoo vanishes, and the magical needle that you used reappears in your space. So I guess like you can, like, oh, Richard, I don't want my tattoo anymore. I'm going to give him to you. <laughs> so I untattoo myself and hand the needle to you, and you can now tattoo yourself with my old tattoo. But only your mm-hmm. old tattoo. I couldn't re-tattoo something new. Okay, so now, mm. now I have a question. What goes into the 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 materials outside of a needle? Produced by a special needle, this magic tattoo featured is features designs that emphasize one color. And it's just you get a specific magical needle, 
in the sketch you put your tattoo on and then take it off and then put it on somebody else. Interesting. That's kind yeah. of bizarre. I, I kind of like it. Definitely a weird one. <laughs> I mean, there used to be a, a 3.5 prestige class where like your whole deal was magic tattoos. I like it. Tattoos on characters is always fun. It reminds me of in, in Eberron, they had things called dragon marks, which is kind of like a magical birthmark that gives you powers. This kind of feels like a watered-down version of that. Very interesting, not addition, but re-emergence, I would say. Yeah, I'm happy to see it. The magic items in this book are really cool. Uh, one thing that they, they put in here... So you know you have like a plus-two sword, you get it gives you plus-two to your attack and your damage? Those items didn't really exist for spellcasters. Like, there wasn't a yep. much that would add to your... You know, your spell save DCs and your spell attack modifiers. In this book, every class pretty much gets one or two of these of these items that they can use for this. That's a good point. So you might have like an amulet of the devout, which helps paladins or clerics cast their spells better and have their spells not as likely to be resisted. This is a huge and necessary thing. Spell casters were really suffering without this, so I'm glad to see it in this book. So I mean we're we're familiar with fourth edition. And I think one of the things in 4th edition that kind of made it the way it was was the melee casters. I shouldn't call them casters, but the, the melee users, they had different abilities, so to speak. It wasn't just, I swing my sword, I hit. Any type of resurgence of that in this book or no? No, not really. No. <laughs> still they still suck. I swing my sword. Thank you. I mean, if you, if you want that... So you can always be like... A fighter, a battlemaster fighter, gets those kind of maneuvers. Um, certain clerics get things where, like, if I hit you, I can, I can cast a spell on somebody else, or I can make you. If I cast a spell on you, I can make this other person do an attack. So there's there's things in this, but it's not as explicit as in fourth edition. Would have been nice to see um, that kind of make a resurgence, but you know. Well, one cool thing that that did make a resurgence in this is psionics. Okay. Uh, psionics are are magic. But they're instead of like coming from some outside source, they're like mental magic. So Richard, uh, there's a rogue in here called the Soul Knife, and you're kind of like Psylocke from X Men, where like you get this like psionic blade that you can do your cool attacks with, and when you're not using it, it just disappears back inside of you. Hmm. So psionics were cool because they were featured heavily in Dark Sun, that campaign setting. So Brian, do you know Dark Sun? No, I do not. Oh, man. So Dark Sun was like a post-apocalyptic D&D, where it was a desert world, and metal was scarce, and the world was ruined by overuse of magic, because when you use magic, it saps a life force from something else. And so it's kind of like verboten. But psionics replaced it. So I'm looking at this book, and I'm seeing all the new psionic stuff, and I'm thinking, hmm, could we be seeing a resurgence or a new Dark Sun campaign setting book coming out soon. Or is it just another example of them picking and choosing? Yeah, I mean, the settings have such a cult following. Like, you have, you know, Dark Sun, you had Eberron already came out recently, Forgotten Realms, they just keep shoving down our throats no matter what. Hey, I like Forgotten Realms. Yeah, that's why they keep shoving <laughs> down our throats. <laughs> Forgotten Realms is fine. It's like, it's just the most generic fantasy you can ask for, you know? I guess. Yeah, I'm going to get probably tweets about that. But if you're going to release a setting book, make it a setting that's different than like castles and dragons and wizards. Like Eberron, you have like 
technology harnessing magic to bring magic to the common people. Like magic is so much more common in those world in that world. And in Dark Sun, you have magic that's run amok, and now the only people that use magic openly are the sorcerer kings and their and their henchmen who are who don't care what effect it has in the world. You know, there's there's ways to give it a little put a little stank on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Another thing that I'm thinking might be coming up. There's a whole section in here that talks about part of like in the DM tools and whatnot shards of whatever far realm or you know magic that's only existing in this weird demi plane. And I'm wondering if that means we might get a Spelljammer book soon. And Spelljammer is an even stranger D&D setting than Dark Sun. Never heard of that one. Yeah, it's kind of like science fantasy, where you're traveling in spaceships between the realms, and you're visiting different worlds and dimensions, but it's D&D. You're going to have to run that one by me. The main D&D is on the material plane. You know, that's where most of all our shit happens. Yeah. That's like Earth. But then you have like the like the Feywild or the other Shadow Fe, or Shadow Realm and all that kind of stuff. You have the Chaos Realm, Elemental Planes, all this. In Spelljammer, you can travel to those fairly easily because you have a magical spaceship that can go between the space between these dimensions. So, magical spaceship, yep. goes through dimensions. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. So it's just like your your world hopping. Yeah, it's it's cool. I would like to see a resurgence of that because I don't think we've had a proper spell jammer since third edition. I was just gonna say I haven't jumped in since fourth, so anything yeah. before that is definitely unheard of. Well, water deep, right? There was one book in fifth that mentioned it. It was uh, water deep had it in fifth edition, didn't it? In spell jammer, they had like one of the uh, like there was a ship of illithids. It was a spell jammer ship that was like in one of the dungeons in that book. Yeah. I would love oh, to see Spelljammer back in this because it's so ridiculous. You know, they could just, I could see like Acquisitions Inc. just running with Spelljammer and 5e and having like a stupidly good time. But didn't they kind of do that though in the most recent AIs uh, that they do that they hold at like PAX? I thought that was the whole ship that they got on and then they they ended. I think they ended up in Eberron and then they ended up somewhere else. The, like the most recent, like the past year. You know, I haven't been following them for the past two years or so. Oof, you're missing. That sounds very much like Spelljammer. So, okay, because so they got into a ship, like a not a time traveling ship, but it definitely brought them to like different dimensions, almost so to speak. Um, it was a little hard for me to follow because obviously I did not know anything of the Spelljammer lore. But if I did, I bet it made a whole lot more sense. Um, and I think they also ended up in one of their Magic the Gathering crossovers, because there was uh, some type of elephant-esque uh, creature. Yeah. 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 I think that's how they got there, was via like, the Spelljammer method. That makes sense. Yeah, those, so, the, those Magic the Gathering books they came out with, they had the Guild, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. They had... What was the other one? Uh, Mystic Theros. Do you know, Ryan? Um... I know the Ravnica one. I don't know that other one because I've. I, I think was was the other one after Ravnica or before? After the Mythic yeah. Odyssey of Theros was that D and D book. So oh, I know the name because yeah. they're coming out with a new, or they came out with a new Magic expansion, or they're going to make a game based on that. I think yeah. I saw that at E three. I want to say could be could be E three. I wouldn't say no to E three. But that's like the Greek theme thing. 
so mm-hmm. there was a lot of stuff in those two books that people just saw the magic like crossover and they just did not want to bother with it. So there was a bard class, college of or subclass, the College of Eloquence, um, and the I think the was the, the Order Domain for Clerics I think was in that book as well. And then one of the Paladins, the Path of Glory or whatever the hell it is. And then you have the the Spore Druid from the Ravnica book and probably some other crap I'm forgetting. Those are all reprinted in this book. So good news. <laughs> so they really they really want that crossover to to happen. I don't think they want the crossover, but they do not want to put any more work into it because they, they scrubbed all the Ravnica whatnot stuff out of the book, but they kept the class they made for that book in here. It's just like they did with, with the Artificer for, for Eberron. They scrubbed all the the stuff that ties it to that world and reprinted it in this book wholesale. Why, though? Because they're lazy. <laughs> it's lazy writing. So, Nate, what about the new feats? So, Ryan, you know how you have a crippling fear of commitment? Oh, yeah. These feats are perfect for you. Because instead of having to multi-class and like, take away from your actual character class that you want to be in, you can take a feat and kind of like do a half What do you mean by that? All right. So, say, for example, Ryan, you want to take a level of fighter as you know, a, a rogue to kind of beef up your stuff, give you some more options. Well, instead of doing that, now you can just take a feat, Fighting Initiate. And that gives you a fighting style from the fighter class. It's kind of like a half-step. And almost every one of these classes has something where you can kind of just like, I don't want to take a full level in that class. I just want to dip my toe in Fighter, or Artificer, or Cleric, or whatever you want to do. So it's trying to make the multi-class system easier? It's not as steep of a buy-in. And you're not missing out on like your end-level stuff. You know, well, I just think you have more rounded characters that way. But after a while, it seems like okay, if everyone has access to the same power suite through these feats, then nobody is special at what they're doing anymore. Yeah, the whole point of multi-classing was to yeah, there's a penalty obviously to get to the end. You're never going to reach end tier. Mm-hmm. However, you had a more unique character compared to what you know somebody who did stick to the the nitty-gritty of like a bard if they just went hard bard (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. all they had but if you went like a bard mage or bard ranger you had a more unique character right with these feats it's just i mean they're they're nice but if you have a sorcerer in your party and you take Meta magic adept, and you start taking like the sorcerer features. I would imagine that sorcerer is going to be pissed because you're kind of like chopping their flavor, you know? Yeah, because you 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 want to have a nice diverse class set. So I guess yeah, these feats could kind of kind of make the other people redundant if they are they that strong of a, a half step or for a feat. I think they're pretty strong. So meta magic adept, I just mentioned, you learn two of the meta magic options from the sorcerer class, which is huge. So if you're a wizard and you take this, you are better than a sorcerer. <laughs> that strong, huh? Because you're able to shape your spells. Like the whole sorcerer thing is like you have fewer spells, but you can do more with them. But huh. if you're a wizard and you take this, well now you have you know, you can take two meta magic options and you gain two sorcery points. So like you're, you know, you're still you can still be a 20th wizard, 20th level wizard and still have the ability to use these meta magic features to change your spells and warp them in your in your own way. So you're not as good as a sorcerer as a full sorcerer is, 
but they're still very powerful. There's really no downside to picking it, correct? Right. I mean, if you're one of those classes that gets a bunch of feats, like a fighter, why not take this? And like, if you're an Eldritch Knight, you're one of the wizard fighter mixes. Yeah, fuck it. Throw a meta magic adept at one of your at one of your free feats, or do that at first level if you're a variant human, and now you're a much better uh, Eldritch Knight or a trickster rogue or whatever the hell that magic rogue is. That's a little rough. Uh, they should have. I mean, they should be a little bit more toned down, maybe, or balanced, so to speak. I mean, they're fine. The balance wise, they're fine. It's just for me, it's like either commit to multiclassing and do it, or just fuck right off. Like you don't you don't need these half steps. Yeah, maybe they could have just looked into the multiclassing system and, and maybe added some more reward to changing things up instead of you get the basic level bonus when you change. Like maybe you get a little something extra if you are a multiclass. No, I don't want to reward people for doing that. <laughs> really? No, because the reward is already that you're able to do more than your base class would have otherwise. And there's all kinds of cheese you can do with multiclassing as it is. Like, in no. one, oh, <laughs> you know me, in one of my other games, I, I play a uh, Valor Bard Swashbuckler Rogue. I'm running in, stabbing a dude, running away. He's again attack me. Then I'm healing my friends and I'm getting a second attack and I'm playing a tabaxi. So my movement is like 120 feet for one round. It's just stupid. You, people who know how to metagame the system don't need further encouragement to metagame. And really, by and large, those are the people you're going to see multiclassing. That's true, because they know how to really yeah. dig in. Yeah, You're going to see assholes like me. <laughs> you don't need to reward us. I mean, anything with bard multiclasses is broken. Uh, I do love bards. Said I'm pretty partial to bards myself. You're an excellent bard. Bards are fun. On the other end, you have really flavorful weird shit, like Chef is one of your feats. And like you increase a constitution or wisdom score, and you can like cook things, and then if you eat the things you cook, you get hit points. Like It's, it's cute. It's not world-shaking, but you know, I like it. It's just a little flavorful thing. Is it worth trading in a plus two to one of your stats? Probably not. But it's still nice. I don't know. It's it's like a trap option. It's for dummies. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the things I was reading about, and it seems like they took it straight out of uh, Ebron and into the Forgotten Realms now, group patrons. Blah. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, you're 100% correct. They took the idea of group patrons, scrubbed all the Eberron off of it, <laughs> and, and plopped it here wholesale. Group patrons are a tool of DM control. It's telling your players, hey, players, I want a reason for you all to be together, and I want to be able to reward slash punish you in-game for not sticking together. Uh, so go ahead and here's the list. Choose your leash for me so I know how to control you best. So kind of like the, just the the who had those strong leashes, the paladins, right? Because they had to be a yeah. holy paladin and you had to follow your 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 God there. And if you ever went off the rails, you you became a uh, what was the term for them? Oh, the anti paladin or the blackguard, depending on yeah. the edition. It's not as bad as that. It's more like, OK, so I'm the DM. I'm going to run a game for you guys. I want you to all pick a patron and you pick, say, one of the options here. First one is uh, Academy. So you're working for a center of learning somewhere out in the world, right? You get certain benefits from this. Like they pay you, you can get access to the research stuff. And I, they can give you quests like, oh, go fetch Yon book from Yon tomb or whatever. I just don't think they're necessary. And I feel like it's just, 
I don't want to say stifling cre- player creativity because that seems you know extreme. But why do these exist? Well, if from all right, from maybe uh, a novice to slash beginner uh, perspective, maybe it's to kind of try to give a little bit of that creativity because they're not going to know that hey, I could have a, a, a you know a godly patron who will give me or te- technically, if you're any type of healer or even a mage class, you should have some type of patron that's providing you the the ability to do this stuff. They might not have any clue that to follow that that type of character development. So they might just say, okay, I'm just going to... I cast magic and that's it. So maybe it's kind of there to help teach them the ability to, to kind of branch out and say, okay, you can do this and you can have this as a, a patron or so and they can you know kind of give you these powers. You can reach out to them for help and stuff like that, maybe. These aren't like warlock patrons, though. These are just like dudes in the world who will give you quests. And if you do the quests, then they'll help you. And in, in other in systems where these things are good, there's at least like a, a scale of points you can earn. Like, okay, if you do this kind of quest for the Harpers, which is a, a, a group, you know, you'll get so many prestige points or whatever it is. And the more of these prestige points you earn, then you get you can like unlock certain tiers of reward. You know what I mean? Well, I know the Harpers. They're they're wild uh, mages in the Forgotten Realms. Sure. Um, oh, sure, me. I, <laughs> I don't know the Harpers. Forgotten Realms, man. It's uh, well, if you ever read the Dritzt, uh novels, they're they're big there. They're just crazy. They're they're very good, kindly mages. It's just they're wild. You know, they they just do any type of spells. Like they're always trying to push the boundaries. Yeah. So I get, I kind of get why they're there. But my point is with that. Not the Harper specifically. Like, if you're going to implement this system and tie players to it, give them tiers of reward to encourage them to stay within the system. So they don't offer that. It's just tiers of reward. It's just like, oh, if you're part of the the academy, um, you can get help on research. You have access to the libraries. They can give you certain trainings, which they reference in another book. They're like, oh, and if you like that idea, go buy Xanathar's Guide to Everything, where they actually tell you about the system of training that they can offer. Oof. And then the conversation, like, oh, if you do so much, you get so much money. But, like, it'd be cool if there were different ranks. You know what I mean? Like, give me certain ranks within this patron or within this group and let me earn these through my actions. Not just like, oh, here's your magical granddaddy who's going to give you, you know, some hard candy whenever you do a quest for them. Like, I don't <laughs> care. And, like, you don't need to link all the players together under this patron. It's not adding anything, but it does take up, like, 30 pages of this book. So that's cool. See, I was actually kind of excited for the, the patrons, honestly, because I thought it would be like a cool little help character development ty- uh, type of thing. But it sounds more of a, uh, in terms of like World of Warcraft or any other RPG, it kind of sounds like a fetch quest. It's okay. Thank you for being a part of this. Now go get, you know, 20 hy- hyena hearts and come back when you're done. I'm just a curmudgeon. I don't see the value in this. You can go to your players and say, hey, I'd like you all to know each other before the adventure. But you don't need to add this half-assed semi-structure to the deal. Like, okay, pick your patron. Let's flesh him out and really describe him. And then what? What's the point? You, you get like very base-level stuff for having a patron. It doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't particularly help much either. It's just another layer of character development that you all have to share. It almost sounds like they're still trying to 
like they did it with 4e how we discussed they're trying to not cater to but really trying to get in those you know role-playing players that played wow and diablo and those games to to really come over more because that does seem like a very rpg video game-esque build like okay you you wake in this town this is who you know like it kind of sets the tone for the player instead of the player setting the tone for themselves yeah i just if i wish they would just lean into the video gaminess of it all the way and and they give them like and the adventures lead to have renowned points that you can earn with different factions and they unlock things like they unlock tangible things so if you have so much renown you can trade it in for a magic item or a healing potion or you know yeah like it, it like lean into it don't give me these half measures so from what you're saying it kind of sounds more like they're just creating this as a starter but there's no finish this okay here this is your patron this is how yeah. it starts and you do this but after that and they don't even say hey as the dm you can do these things it's just these are the rewards or whatever yeah pretty much that's a bit of a bummer they do tell you how to be your own patron which i find very empowering so i appreciate that you know be your own patron yeah every every morning when i wake up i look in the mirror and i say nate today's the day you're going to be your own patron <laughs> they talk about yeah running your own let's see when you run your own organization use the running a business downtime activity described in dungeon master's guide and uh, yeah i don't no one's doing this no one will ever do this <laughs> That almost sounds like the Grand Theft Auto. Uh, you you're the pre- you're the CEO <laughs> of your own company in Grand Theft Auto. You can do jobs yeah. to boost your company, but it has nothing to do with the main story. Yeah, you got it. Pretty much nailed it. Like it, it it's trying to really introduce the players into story building, and, and maybe it's making it easier for new DMs too. And maybe that's it. Maybe this book just isn't for me. Maybe it's for the the people that don't own the other books or haven't seen this stuff before. So, the DM tool yeah. section, I, I do want to give the Wizards a little credit on this. In the DM tool section, which is a pretty big chunk of this book, they codify stuff that a lot of tables are already doing, but I, I like seeing it written down. And part of that is they encourage you to have a session zero. And like before you actually run anything, have your players and say, hey, you know what, here's the overall theme of this game. You know, what would you like to see out of a game? You know, how can I make this interesting to you? Most tables are already doing something similar to that, but I love the fact that it's just in this book for, for new players to pick up and have tacit permission to ask their players what they want to see in a game. Like, oh, I, I want a game where all where it's the high political intrigue and you know there's a lot of backstabbing and party infighting and really role play heavy. Well, you don't want that. You want a Conan the Barbarian game where you're going to walk up to the monster and stab it in the face until it stops moving. Then you're going to sell its teeth for gold and buy Grog. Like, those two players might not enjoy playing together. And that's what a Session Zero is for, is to really suss out what you want out of a game and how you can all help each other achieve fun, which is the goal. That's a really nice addition because it really... Everybody does have a different play style and different wants or needs and it's the whole thing with dungeons and dragons is to not necessarily incorporate all of them but to have a bit of something for everybody yeah absolutely you know there's no one game that's going to fit everybody but this game has enough flexibility in it where you can probably find something to work for your table as long as you want to play 
a fairly traditional fantasy RPG. One thing I loved in this, they call out specifically the social contract. Like, as a player at a table, as part of a gaming community, what do you owe that table in terms of your behavior, and what can you expect in return? That's nice to see in black and white and writing from Watsi. Like, good job, wizards. That's nice. To talk about talking, like, to talk about hard limits and soft limits. Like, okay, we're going to have a game that's going to be a, a horror game. What don't you want to see in this? Like, personally, if I'm playing a role-playing game, I don't want to see a lot of violence against kids. You know, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want a lot of sexual violence in my game. I don't need to see that. Other players might, like I had one girl I used to play with all the time. She hated anything with fucking bugs. If there was like a spider in the game, she was fucking out of there. That's good to know. Because I, don't, I know as a, as a DM, I don't want to put something to this player that's going to completely turn them off from D&D. And the fact that they have this, like, hey, make sure you're asking your players and giving them permission to, like, throw their hands up and be like, no, I don't want that. Please stop doing this, you know? So a D&D safe word. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, a lot of games use something called an X card, where, like, there's a card on the table, it's got an X on it. If something's happening, you can just go ahead and touch that X, and it stops. That's usually not necessary in D&D, because you're not dealing with stuff like intimate partner violence, that kind of shit, you know? But maybe you have some really weird DM who's trying to get weird with it. It's good to have these tools written down. They could have gone further with it, but this is a great first step for Wizards, and I'm glad to see it in this book, because it hasn't been there before. Also, they have a part about parlaying with monsters instead of beating them up. So that's that's nice. So they, <laughs> they actually introduced more of a, listen, you don't have to solve everything with, I go in and I stab it. Right. So, like, for example, you have oozes. What do the oozes want? Well, as a DM, you can roll 1d4 and think what the players could offer the ooze to make it fuck off without having to kill it. So, like, for example, they have a vial of putrid liquids, a cloth bearing a noxious odor, bones or metal, which ooze prompt, which the ooze promptly absorbs, or a gallon of any effervescent fluid. Like, it's, it's dumb. I love it. <laughs> like, if you're a player and you come to my game, you want to talk to the ooze, like, it's probably going to eat you. But if you're able to offer it a vial of effervescent liquids or a gallon of it, yeah, that's neat. Go for it. That's cool. That's much more of a memorable story than like, I hack at the gelatinous cube for the next five minutes. And then later on you have uh, environmental hazards they talk about, which again, I was hoping this meant maybe something with Spelljammer since a lot of these environments are like far-flung areas. Talk about psychic resonance and mirror worlds and all that kind of stuff. Maybe... Probably just wishful thinking that it's Spelljammer shit. And then the book wraps up with a chapter on puzzles, how to run them, some sample puzzles. It's it's puzzles. Who doesn't like puzzles? Yeah, it's a nice little addition. It doesn't always have to be combat as well. You can have a little uh, skill challenges. Yeah, those are big in 4th edition. And I, I wish they were back in 5th. I mean, you can. You can implement, implement a lot of stuff from 4th edition into 5th. And... You know, it's not challenging to do. Scale challenges are fantastic. You know, you have to escape the collapsing temple, and you can do it however you want, but whatever you're trying to attempt, you need to get X many challenges succeed or uh, checks successful before you have Y failures. Mm -hmm. And if you're able to do that, then you succeed. So, yeah, that was a nice tight 190 some odd pages um, for Tosh's uh, Cauldron of Everything. The first. D&D book, as far as I know, a mainstream D&D book to be named after a female character. 
you know, Tasha's College and of Everything has a lot of great stuff going for it. It's the biggest dump of subclasses since Xanathar's Guide. It's got a lot of great, you know, rules for, for new players. The magic items are fantastic. But the biggest issue for me for this book is that so much of it is reprinted from previous books. And, you know, if you own these books, you're losing out on a lot of value from this. So that begs the question, can you just skip it if you own Eberron and if you own the two magic books that, you know, this is borrow so much from? The answer is no. And I think that's the biggest problem. In the subclasses, before they start getting into every subclass, just about every class gets a substantial power boost. So, for example, let me just get back into this. Um, let's look at Cleric. Cleric, you get additional spells that you didn't have before, accessed by the Clerics. You get a way to spend the use of your channel divinity to regain some of your lost spell slots. You can imbue your, your hammer strikes or whatever your weapon you're using with magical energy at a certain level. And no matter what subclass you get, you get these powers. So if you're just playing a regular player's handbook cleric, and you don't have this book to borrow from as well, you are less powerful of a cleric no matter what subclass you are, just because this book has the essential updates for every single class. So if you do own those other books, you still need to get this book to, make, to just be competitive with the other you know, classes. It's so much reprinted material and things that just have existed in other games and other things are already are already being done at tables, wrapped in a very thin veneer of highly necessary items that you cannot skip. I feel like Watsi knew what they were doing with that. I feel like they had, you know, a few like virtue signaling things like, oh look, aren't we good? And then now actually here's a bunch of other stuff that you already have, but here it is again but with all the serial numbers filed off, so you can't get too mad about it because it's been sanitized. And then here's a handful of wonderful things that you need to have to keep the game current. So please give us 50 bucks. So do you feel if this was maybe a $30 release, it would be worth it? Or I guess my ultimate question is, is it worth it? I paid 30 bucks for this, you know, and it's worth it. I think at 50 bucks, it's worth it because you need the powers in this book that you wouldn't get otherwise to maintain the level of, of competency for your character. It's, it's a, it's the closest thing that you can get in wizards to, to a pay to play. And that's a real slippery slope for me. Most of this should have been a free errata that they, they issued electronically. Like, Hey, you know, we realized that a lot of the classes, they weren't on the same level playing field in terms of power. And we need to give them all a little boost to kind of even them out. And so here's what we're having. And then boom, here's an errata they put out, like a correction. But instead of doing that, they sold you it for an ex a substantial amount of money packed with things you probably already own if you're a fan of D&D. That's shitty. There's no other way to put that for me. That's just shitty to do. Wizards, they, they did a couple half steps in the right direction, and then they, they dropped the ball badly. So buy this book. Because <laughs> you need it. Because you need it. Because there's no other fucking choice. Unless you want to be underpowered. And nobody wants that. Well, that's our thoughts and our opinions on, you know, the Tasha's culture of everything. I just want to say thank you to everyone for 
taking the time to to listen to our little uh, the in between here, our break from our real play, and so that we could you know just dive into the the newest creation or new creation of old stuff uh, from Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, uh, if you want to see some homebrew materials, some more reviews, some really cool nerdy stuff, come on over to potofblunders.wordpress.com and make sure you follow us on Twitter at Pot of Blunders. And with that, thank you, everyone. And, uh, bye. See you next time.